Shabbat Shalom, it's great to be here, and I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. And why don't we have a word of prayer? Lord, we just want to thank you for this day. We thank you, God, this is the day you've made. And we just thank you, God, for those that uh, came out today. Uh, You know, people are traveling right now. We pray for traveling mercies for all those people that are here uh, coming home this weekend or going to places. We ask you to just watch over them and protect them. And also, God, we just pray that, uh, uh, also, we just thank you, God, that uh, we have the opportunity to be here. We have a facility and we have the ability to come here and fellowship with each other. Uh, Lord, we pray today, of course, uh, whenever we teach or do anything, whether it be MSI, Saturday, whatever, it's always about people hearing from you. That's the goal, that they hear from you. We don't want to, uh, you know, the goal is that only that the Ruach uh, helps them to hear from you. And that's what we desire today, and we pray this all in Messiah's name. Amen. All right. Well, there, it's funny, this topic today, I, I gave you an outline today. You know, sometimes I use PowerPoint to help me make the point, and uh, I thought today that we do something a little different and just use a little handout, a little outline as if you have it in front of you, because uh, if you don't have it, you're going to be kind of lost. And we're going to do something today. We're going to talk about something I've actually never really presented on or preached on or, uh, you know, in a sermon, I would say. We had a class on this topic several years ago at MSI. I, I taught a class on this topic, but we haven't offered it in quite some time. But today, I thought it might be as good as a day as any to do this topic. When I was thinking about what to do and praying about it, there's so many different topics, maybe the rock brings you your mind, and then it's like, well, just pick one. So it doesn't just have to be always just one thing. So I picked this one, and we went with this. So, you know, at the top of your outline, it says, what's your worldview in exercising loving uh, God with your everything? I think we hopefully know when every week we get up here and we say the Shema, one of the hallmarks of our faith, or one of the points that we try to drive home of Beth Messiah, is that we love God holistically. I mean, you've heard that word used so many times, holistic, 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 and that it means that we are called to love God with all our being. Now, I'm not going to go to the passage in Mark 12, 20, 1230 at the top of your outline about Yeshua's discussion about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You know, it's translated some different ways. There's some issues there. Of course, he says, love your neighbors yourself. But, and I'm not going to go to Deuteronomy and pull out that passage. I think we've all seen those passages many times as we say them every week. But it's interesting, you know, that when you study those words, and, and there's a thing called biblical anthropology. That's where we take like things like how words like hearts used in the Bible and our body and soul and spirit and all those things, we try to exegete those. And it's a long, it's a lengthy process. And I know that we have more than enough resources here that provide uh, us with tools to do that. But when it comes to loving God with our everything, we're really, you know, the heart in the Bible is the totality of who you are. It's your intellect, it's your emotion, it's your will, it's everything, right? And even when we look up the word soul, nefesh, you know, that can have a holistic, uh, you know, means to love God holistically as well. So we don't really want to carve those up to make a sharp dichotomy between all those things. We're talking about, you know, what Yeshua talking about there, you know, heart, soul, and mind, you know, and what's that mean? But the point is today that we want to definitely 
uh, be loving, trying to, as we come together today and look at this topic, you know, I, I don't want this to be an exercise in just philosophy. And some people might look at this topic and like, oh God, what's he talking about philosophy? World's messy in a congregation. Well, I think you'll see as I go down here, you know, what we're doing here. But, you know, the point is that I want you to hopefully be engaged cognitively with everything. And it's funny, I, I now live, uh, have the, uh, opportunity to now have my elderly parents in the same household as I do on a daily basis. And my dad came home one day and showed me this magazine he bought, Brain Power. Isn't that funny? Anyway, when you're 89 years old, you're always studying things, how to keep your mind sharp. And I opened it up. He said, why don't you take a look at it? So I was scrolling through it one day, and I, I thought you might like to know this. This is very interesting. It'll tie in with what I'm saying. Healthy Habits, Healthy Brain. That's the name of this one article in here. Health Healthy habits, healthy brain. Here are some of the daily habits that can help you attain optimal brain health. Number one, a healthy diet. They say you are what you eat, and numerous studies have shown that eating a balanced diet is a boon to overall health. Okay, so a healthy diet helps your brain, obviously. That's, that's a given. Cardiovascular exercise is another one. You've long heard that cardiovascular exercise is good for a healthy heart and body, but it also offers great benefits to the brain. Research shows that it makes direct changes to the structure and function of your brain, therefore improving overall cognitive performance. Thirdly, sound sleep is a reason you spend roughly a third of your life sleeping. It's critical to optimal health. Scientists have shown that a good night's rest is linked to better concentration, memory, and decision-making. Meditation's another one. It's not just for the Dalai Lama anymore. It's uh, taking time each day to quiet your mind has been linked to a variety of health benefits. Among them, improved sleep, decreased stress, and boosted immune function. Social connections is another one. Uh, they say here, it, uh, social connection is important and being isolated leads to both emotional and physical deterioration. Why are social networks so critical to brain health? Because they help reduce overall stress. Having strong social connections helps elevate mood, introduces us to new intellectual challenges, inspires us to engage in more physical activity, and allows us to express ourselves emotionally. And then finally, guess what the last one is? Intellectual engagement. How about that? Want a healthy brain? Never stop learning. Forget that about old dogs and new tricks. The brain loves novelty as well as good intellectual challenges. Finding ways to learn new information and skills throughout your life is one way to invigorate your neurons and keep them firing in an optimal fashion. Multiple studies have shown that intellectual engagement, whether it's through college courses, music lessons, or puzzles, can help strengthen the connections and keep you sharp. Well, how about that? And I'd be willing to bet that many of us in this room are probably practicing some of these. I mean, we're all kind of socially connected here today, right? So, hey, you're practicing that. We prayed. I've uh, done some meditation. I mean, you know, in our, in our view of meditation, whether you're eating well, I have no idea. That's, that's, that's your thing. I don't know what you're doing with that. Whether you exercise, I don't know. And whether you're getting sleep, I don't know. That's, that's something only you know. But the one thing that we are doing today, uh, I would say by going over this handout and going over this teaching is we are going to become lifelong learners today. We're participating in intellectual engagement because Yeshua said to love God with our everything, which includes our minds. And so look at it this way today. You are helping your brain. You're getting brain power, right? So isn't that great? All right. You guys are just thrilled, I can tell. So let's look at your handout here. Now, so we have this word, word uh, worldview at the top. Now, perhaps some of us have heard this word. Some of us may have not heard of it. But 
Believe it or not, all of us have a worldview, or actually, you're in the midst of forming your worldview. Uh, now, I, there are so many definitions of worldview. I mean, I could just fill up like sheets and sheets and uh, sheets of definitions because I have so many textbooks on it that everyone gives different definitions. So I went with one, and I think it's pretty good. One definition here it says an explanation, interpretation of the world, and second, an application of this view to life. So that's pretty good. Um, you know, sometimes a worldview is viewed as like a life view. Okay, it's it's. It's the way you interpret reality. It's your view of reality. It's your view of the world, okay? Now, we form our worldview through various things. Now, let me say this. When I came to faith in Messiah around uh, 24 years ago, I, you probably all know this because it happened to you. It's kind of like, you know, you can't see spiritually. There's a blindness there, as we all know, and then the Lord takes, removes those blinders, and then you can see God through the scriptures, and you know the Lord, right? The Ruach comes into your life. Well, there's something else that happens, and that is the fact that he also gives you a new set of glasses to actually see reality and see the world, right? And so you actually start interpreting the world in a different way. You know, it used to kind of be like, wow, I kind of saw reality this way or maybe that way. And then when you know the Lord, it's like, whoa, it's like, man, I can really see things differently now, okay? And everything about a worldview, uh, you know, we form our worldview through, obviously, the scriptures and through peer groups and through, um, you know, our, our social interaction and fellowship and through study and through life experience and things. But a worldview is so important because if you look at A and B here, it impacts everything, okay? It impacts how you're going to raise your family. It impacts your calling, what career you're going to pick, how you're going to use your money, your time, how you're going to vote. It views, uh, impacts how you're going to pick what education you're going to pick or what your kids are going to get educated in, the arts, everything. So really, uh, in all rea- the reality of it is that... Uh, our faith is not just about a personal relationship with Yeshua, okay? That's not all it is. Yes, we have a relationship with Yeshua, that's important, but we need to see the bigger picture, okay? And let me say this, why this is so important, is because if you were at the leadership meeting, I know a lot of you weren't there, but Sunday night we had the leadership meeting, congregational meeting, and we are kind of just, I think we all notice, we are at the point as a congregation where we need to be reaching some families and some people out there. Like we need people coming here. We need to find ways to be creative. I, myself as well. I'm not pointing anybody out. We all need to be creative and need to be reaching out to people around us. The Jewish community, of course, and all people around us. And we need to understand that everyone out there has a different worldview. And a lot of times we're going to have to work through worldview issues with them to see what their worldview is and talk to them and kind of see where they're at in some of these issues, okay? And one of the reasons why they might not come to Beth Messiah, of course, may not, be, may not believe in God, but they have a totally different worldview, okay? So if you look at B here, there's no B here under your first, uh, the outline at the top. It says, a worldview is seated deep within us. It takes root in our hearts and then flows out of our hearts in the way we think and what we think and say and do, okay? So worldview is not just an intellectual exercise. It becomes who you are. It's like a it's rooted in you. It's like, this is the way I view reality. This is the way I live my life. This is the way I make decisions. It's because of my worldview. Now, obviously, it all stems from the next point right here, point uh, Roman numeral number two, is God. 
any worldview that someone forms, they'll have to deal with the God question. At least they should be dealing with that question because if God exists and if the God of the Bible is the one true God, that's going to shape your entire worldview, okay? That, that's the starting point, all right? Now, like I said already, when we come to faith in the Messiah, our worldview changes because once we know there's a God, whoa, it's like, oh my gosh, like I never knew that before. I never thought this way. I never thought that way. I always learned it this way, and then I have to rethink the whole thing, okay? So I just wanted to, uh, just a little reminder here on the God of the Bible issue on Roman numeral number two. I'm well aware of the fact that many of us uh, in this room, probably all of us, if you're here today, already believe in the God of the Bible. I think I'm pretty much speaking to the choir here. Um, But I just did a class at MSI, which uh, I was really blessed to teach. It was the big questions class. We did a six-week class called the big questions class, dealing with the big questions like, how do you know there's a God, and how do you know the Bible's true, and all those things. And it went really well, but just a little tidbit from that class. There was much more to it. But, you know, if we want to know, uh, you know, as far as God, like how would we communicate there's a God to people out there who don't even think God exists, uh, just a little reminder here. Now, everyone in this congregation that I know, I'm looking around here today, I think I'm, I pretty much know everyone on some level. Some of you I've known a lot longer, and some of you know me better than, than others, and et cetera, et cetera. That's the way relationships go. But the point is that somebody, one of you or myself, had to take the initiative to approach you and say, what's your name? How are you? I'm Eric. I'm Chris Cotting. Hey, tell me about yourself. I'm an elder here. Oh, great. You know, we, we hang out. We learn about each other. He gets to know me. I get to know him. But the point is that there had to be a disclosure. There had to be something I didn't know about Chris before or Dan or somebody had to be exposed. I didn't know that. And one of us had to take the initiative to communicate, okay? We had to either talk to each other or someone introduced us or something. And that is exactly what God does with humanity, okay? In order for people to know there's a God, God has to communicate, okay? Now, you guys all rely on your phones all day and your texts and your emails. You can't live without them. God forbid it if you lost your laptop today. Uh, or your phone, you might have a heart attack because um, you can't, can't check the score of the ball game. Oh, I said it anyway. Um, okay, so the point is that God has to take the initiative, communicate with humans, okay? He is an infinite being, and we are finite creatures, right? He has to bridge that gap with humanity. How does he do that? Well, he does it a couple ways. A very, uh, you know, this is a very short breakdown. There's much more to it, but Not everybody, you know, people don't need the Bible to know there's a God. They don't need the Bible to know there's a creator because Paul, of course, talks about this in Romans 1, that God has shown what he is like, a little bit of what he is like through the world of nature. Now, if you ever looked at Romans 1 carefully here, if you want to turn there in your Bible for a second, go to Romans 1. Now, we know the whole, the beginning of the chapter, Paul talks about you know, his calling as an apostle, he talks about Yeshua being the son of God through the resurrection, talks about the preaching of the gospel, talks about they're not ashamed of the gospel. And then we get down to verse 18. You know, it says here in verse 18, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness or ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, 
His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they came futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Okay, I'm not going to read the whole chapter because eventually what you see here, an exchange takes place, the people reject creation and then they fall into idolatry. But the point is that you notice how God, what Paul says here, that people in verse... Uh, he just said here in verse 20, verse 20, he said that God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. People can perceive that through what has been made, through what has been made. That means that people can look at things in the natural world, features of reality and infer there is a creator. They should be able to look around and see that was made by God. That couldn't be accounted for unless God did it. That took a creator. And he's saying that people can know this without the Bible. Not everybody needs a Bible to know there's a creator. I mean, I know a lot of people that uh, already believed in God before they read the Bible. I mean, I used to believe in, I believed in God before I came to faith in the Messiah. But that passage only reveals a little bit about God. It doesn't give his full character and what he is like, right? It doesn't tell you whether God's merciful, he's loving. It, it talks about his wrath there at the beginning that God judges in verse 18. But the point is that people can know to some extent there is a powerful designer that created this world at some level. They should be able to infer that. Now, we know in Romans 1, like we just read there, we read in Romans 1 that people don't accept it necessarily. They turn away from that and they fall into idolatry. But God has made it clear. He doesn't say it's ambiguous. He said it's clear, right? Now, the other way that, uh, so the point is that people can look at nature, the world of nature, and know there is a God. Now, Paul also mentions something in Romans 2, if you just go over one chapter over, says here in verse uh, 12 to 15, he talks about here the law, and then he talks about how the, the Jewish people, Israel, of course, have the written law. They have the written Torah. We all know that. It was given to Israel. The written Torah was. But what about us Gentiles? Well, it says here in verse 12 to 14 to 15, for all have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law, and have sinned under the law, will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are law to themselves. And if they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through the Messiah. So it seems to be that God has, while he's given Israel the written Torah, he has given the other nations a moral law that they should be able to know intuitively there is a moral law written on their hearts. Now, some people call that conscience, but there's some kind of moral law that people should know intuitively, like they, they should know a right and a wrong on some level. So that's something that other people, you know, Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about, about this in The Abolition of Man, that book, The Abolition of Man. He said he studied all cultures, all the different cultures. He said they all have similar similarities in a universal moral code, do not murder, do not do certain things. He says, it's interesting. So he thought that this passage kind of late played out that God has planted that universal moral law in the Gentile nations. So 
Some people, people can come to know there's a God through the gift of creation and through the moral law. We know they don't fully accept that. But in order to know God, to know God and who he is and have a relationship with God, to know him in his attributes and to have saving faith, they need to move from that natural revelation to special revelation. Special revelation is this, see? That is why they need to hear about the good news, okay? I have a family member who believes in a designer. They say there's too much order in the universe. There's got to be a God, but he doesn't have saving faith, okay? That's not enough to believe in God. They've got to move from the, the, the natural to the special revelation. And what special revelation says here, God's more specific self-disclosure comes in through his great redemptive acts, events, and words and words in history. So Israel is a testimony of God's special revelation, the nation of Israel. And by the way, as one of my Jewish friends said to me, he said, how do I know God exists? Because I exist. That's what he said. Get it? Anyway, Jewish people exist is a testimony that God exists, their existence, right? So the point is that Israel and the Bible and, of course, the coming of the Messiah is a greater revelation of God to humanity. Of course, we share that with people. Now, one last thing I wrote here about a note here, a number three. It says here, we know, by the way, if you ever uh, wonder, you might have noticed, um, we in Beth Messiah already believe the Scripture is authoritative and it's inspired, but the audiences that we're talking to outside of these four walls don't necessarily accept that premise. So I just wrote a little note here that if you ever want to talk about the Bible as a true revelation, there's multiple ways you can approach it. You can talk about historical archaeological confirmation. Of course, you can talk about fulfilled prophecy. We've had plenty of classes on that. And of course, once you establish who Yeshua is, we can talk about what Yeshua said about the Bible, because Yeshua had a very high view of the Tanakh. That was the only thing that was written at his time, and he promised the coming of the New Testament as well, okay? So what about some of these worldview questions? Some of these questions, do, does our worldview answer these questions better than other worldviews? Yes, I think they do. Um, and let's look at one of these here. The first one, of course, is, that's very important is origins, okay? What are we, where do we come from? I, you know, there's a couple options out there, as uh, you probably already know. One thing that, uh, one option we could take is that we are simply further evolved animals, of course, that came through the interplay of matter, time, and chance. Oh, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Fantastic. Or are we created in the image and likeness of a personal God? Now, I think any of us that went to college in the last 50 years probably know that uh, the only one that is taught on college campuses generally is number one, right? Uh, Number two is not really on the board on a secular university, so that's why some people don't go to secular universities. But, you know, that question right there plays a huge part of our worldview. Where do we come from, okay? Because if we are created in the image and likeness of God, that changes the whole ballgame, okay? And have you ever noticed in our culture around us how much people fight for other people? We fight for human rights. We fight for dignity and value. We speak up when there's injustice. Why is that? Because we think humans matter. Humans matter. But why do they matter? Do they matter because they're creating the image and likeness of God and God has endowed that dignity on all humans? Or is it just because we are the result of time, chance, and uh, through a naturalistic evolutionary process. You know, that is a huge worldview question, okay? 
And then that would lead directly to the next one is what are we? You know, what is the nature of humanity? Are we a highly complex meat machine? You know, or just or a person made in the image and likeness of God? And so I think that those two worldview questions are directly tied together, okay? Now, uh, there is something that ties into this as well, and that is the morality question. Now, it's interesting that <clears throat> my, uh, I also tried to, you know, I've noticed that there's a lot of papers lying around our, our house these days because we're living with our older parents. One of them is uh, the New York Times, and there was an article written recently, recently by a guy named David Brooks, and it was called Fighting America's Spiritual Void. It's interesting. And this is what he says in this article. This ties in with the morality question about worldview issues. He says, um, let's see here. Okay, as a culture, we're getting pretty bad at dealing with moral injury. Sometimes I look at the rising suicide and depression rates, the rising distrust, and I think it all flows from the fact that we've made our culture a spiritual void. When you privatize morality and denude the public square of spiritual content, you rob people of the community resources they need to process moral pain together. The good news is that people who are addressing trauma most directly are receiving a moral language and developing a moral curriculum. And then he goes on, I can't read the whole thing, he goes on to say here that I think it'll take a lot to make our culture a thick moral culture, but one way or another, nations and people have to grow a soul big enough to enclose the traumas that haunt them. So, you know, he's basically saying that he sees this moral void all around our culture. And this makes us ask, you know, under the morality question right here, what is wrong with humans? I mean, we have the same sins decade after decade, the same problems over and over. I mean, have we really advanced so much? I mean, people say, well, if you have more education and it's sociological, it's this, it's that, that that'll fix these problems. It hasn't fixed it. All the same problems, most of the same ways we treat each other, same problems are still there. And perhaps we need to realize that our worldview answers that question. It speaks to reality. The humans are separated from their creator. We are alienated and we are off. We don't have shalom. We don't have peace. And we're fractured and fragmented, same thing. And the point is that we uh, have a problem, okay? And see, we can speak to that issue. This is what's wrong with humans. There's a depravity issue, okay? And what about this issue of number two here? Is God the foundation of moral values and moral duties? Now, you may say, what's that? Uh, moral values are actually just things like lo love and justice and mercy, things like that. Moral duties are what you're obligated to do, Okay. And your moral duties flow from your moral values, okay? The question is, do humans create those values and duties? Do societies do it? Or do they flow from the nature of God? Is God the foundation of your moral values and duties? Well, if society creates our own moral values and duties, that means we don't know which society has it right. Just like in the Holocaust, you know, when uh, the Nazis were being tried in the uh, Nazi crime, uh, the, the trials, and they said, you can't hold us accountable. We're just going by the dictates of our culture. And what did a judge do in that trial scene? One of the judges said, no, there's a moral law above you that judges you. There's a moral law that's universal across humanity that we're holding you accountable to, okay? And so if we create our own moral values and moral duties, we will have moral schizophrenia. And that's exactly what we have, of course. You all know that uh, 
cultures going all different directions, okay? But you notice how we have a, moral, a more natural fit with our worldview. If God is the foundation of moral values and moral duties, morality flows from his nature, and he's a good God. He doesn't give us commands because he's like mean and angry. It's because he knows what's best, right? And so God lays the foundation of moral values and moral duties in our worldview, okay? In our worldview. But we can talk to other people about this, okay? All right. So three worldview questions so far. Origins, what is the nature of humanity, and morality. Let's turn the page here. And then we have reality. What is reality? You may say to yourself, well, what the heck is this? I mean, I don't know. I get up every day. I'm in reality, right? Anyone see the movie The Matrix? Anyway, so that's a whole other story. But um, when it comes to reality, you know, we have to ask ourselves in our worldview, comparing to other worldviews, is this world all there is? Is it just a physical world? Is this all we see, everything we experience physically? Or is there anything that transcends the physical world, okay? Because if we have a biblical worldview, that means, of course, there is a God beyond the physical world, and he interacts within this world, right? That's what, we're not deists. We don't believe like God wound up nature and then he just stopped. He still interacts in this world today. And by the way, uh, reality is something that uh, bumps you on the head, even if you don't like it. I mean, it just, you know, reality has a way of catching up with you. Um, you know, when people say to, if people say to you, well, you know, I, if you believe God exists, I'm happy for you. You believe God exists. That's a good thing. You know, it makes you happy. No, uh, when we make, you know, we're talking about God existing, you know, your faith doesn't make God exist. Your faith doesn't make Yeshua rise from the dead. It's not magic. Okay. Your faith only appropriates what's in this book, this revealed text right here. Okay. God exists or he doesn't exist. Okay, he's an, he's an objective entity outside of you, okay? It's not like he's just a psychological trick in your brain. Like, if I believe hard enough, I can make him exist. That's not what it is, okay? So God uh, exists. He existed, of course, before we were even here. And so, you know, don't let, uh, let's not get confused about that. And then what about purpose here? E on purpose. Now, this is a big one. Did anyone ever read the book that came out years ago, the one that sold 28 million copies, The Purpose Driven Life. Anybody read that book? It's long gone now. But Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, I think it sold 30 mil, 28 to 30 million copies. He donated all that money to Africa, from what I understand, which is great. Most of it paid back his church's salary or the salary of his church. But the point is that that really shows you that people must be interested in this topic to sell that many copies. People are looking for purpose. Well, can people, make, can people have purpose without God? Can people have purpose without a biblical worldview? Yes and no. Yes and no. Yes, you can work on projects all your life. You can just throw yourself into your career. You can have family purpose. You can have little projects. Uh, you can find time volunteering and do all kinds of things. Sure, sure, you can throw yourself into those things. Maybe those things give you purpose. But there's no uh, ultimate purpose for you, no ultimate, no, uh, no long-term purpose, no ultimate meaning, no objective purpose, that's for sure. Nothing outside yourself. It's certain, just created by yourself, right? And you can stay busy and focus on those things, and a lot of people do, and they think they're living a happy life without God. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, if God exists, those things certainly are going to have to be viewed as temporal things, and also 
Most people will be slapped out of those things when a crisis happens, okay? It's only when one of those things gets challenged in their lives that they'll say, oh, you know what, maybe there is something but beyond my temporal purpose right here of just doing this and doing that. You know, what if uh, this is the worldview of people that we're simply random creatures in a purposeless, meaningless universe? <clears throat> universe. That's what some people believe, but we have been creating the image and likeness of God. Of course, we have an objective purpose because we're living out His calling on our lives, right? And so, yes, people can create meaning and purpose, but those things are only temporary, and they're also can be challenged at any time whatsoever, and people run into that problem. It happens all the time. Now, what about identity? <clears throat> this is a big one, definitely a big one today. What about identity and what defines us? So identity, okay. So I taught on this at MSI once uh, a couple years ago. Identity, of course, is what defines us, what makes us tick, what is it that, that you know, really gets you going, you know, what, who am I and what, what gets me more than anything else. Yes, we have a lot of identity confusion in our culture because... If you don't find your core identity in the Messiah, being image bearer of God, you're going to have to go, to go to something quickly, right? And we will have all kinds of people, we already do, as we know, what do you find your identity in? Of course, for some people, it's in what they own, it's where they live, it's their career, it's their, in this day and age, sexuality is a huge debate. A lot of people find their identity in their sexuality. And of course, we know we have political identity. We call it uh, politics identity. I have worked with college students, and this is a big thing on campuses, that people need an identity, and so they latch on to a, a specific political system, okay? And unfortunately, as we all know, these things, uh, biblically speaking, could end up kind of becoming idolatr idolatrous, right? And they let you down. They end up letting you down at some point. Your career can be shifted. You can lose your job. You can lose your status, you may be moved out of a certain city. I don't even get to tell you how politically those things can let you down. That You guys all know that. Uh, that happens every election. People wig out. But the point is that these things are shifting. They're all shifting, okay? And the only core identity we can have biblically is in the Messiah or being an image bearer of God, right? That's something that is not shifting anywhere, Okay. And so we need to, uh, you know, drive that home with people. You know, what are you finding your identity in? Okay, especially our young people, right? Now, I'm just going to say a confession that, you know, I'm guilty of all these things. I've, I've struggled with, um, in my life, of course, you know, finding my identity and career and, you know, status and those things. We all do that. And I think that we need to be honest. But we need to check ourselves, right? We need to check ourselves regularly. And hopefully we can go back and say, you know, what is my core identity? Who am I? I'm an image bearer of God, okay? All right. Now, what about uh, destiny? Okay, well, that certainly is referring to the end. What direction are we going in as humans? Are we just going to face personal extinction or maybe transformation to a higher state or some form of reincarnation, which is hot these days? Reincarnation's in, it's popular. Or we resurrected. Uh, and may, may I say something? Um, may we be praying for, uh, is he here? Is he gone? I don't, yeah, he's back there. Uh, be praying for Henry. Uh, he recently lost a, a good friend of his who's a local pastor. And uh, he, he has a young family. And I know Henry's going to his funeral today. So let's be praying for that pastor, uh, pastor's family. He's local, he was on the east side of Columbus. 
but he, he had died unexpectedly. So that's a real tragedy. But I, let's pray that you know, they are able to somehow see the resurrection today as their hope. But at the end of the day, you know, we have the answer that uh, you know, the end is not personal extinction. It's not transformation to a higher state. It's definitely not reincarnation. Has anyone ever seen anyone come back and anyone else? I haven't. I don't know. I mean, some people, maybe you think, I had one guy tell me on campus, he's a, he, he used to be a bird. I don't know. I mean, so the point is that, uh, you know, we have the answer that uh, resurrection is the end goal. It's not just heaven. Heaven is, is one place, but then we move on to resurrection. Resurrection, new body, resurrection, new heavens, new earth. Salvation is now, it's the future, it's everything. Salvation is resurrection, okay? And so we have another answer to worldview questions with the, death, with the destiny issue, okay? So I wanted, as we kind of move on here, I want you to see as we've gone through origins, the nature of humanity, morality, reality, purpose, identity, and destiny, that there's kind of like, they all kind of flow together. There's like a holistic... Uh, way they all kind of come together. I mean, if you believe that you're creating the image and likeness of God, you aren't just a chance accident. That's going to impact how you view people. If you believe you are not just a highly complex meat machine, that's going to impact how you view people, of course, as well, and how we fight for so, you know justice and rights. It's certainly going to impact your the morality issue question, right? It's going to impact how you view reality. It's going to impact purpose. It's going to impact identity. It's certainly going to impact destiny. So all these things just flow together, okay? See how God's done it? The Bible gives us a very holistic worldview. Now, what about testing worldviews? How do we do that? You may say, well, who wants to do that? I don't care. I mean, I got my worldview. I don't care what anyone else believes, but you actually do need a few tests, and these are important, okay? One of them uh, definitely is a truth test. Now, I assume that everybody wants a worldview that's true, right? I assume, right? You guys rely on true bank statements. You rely on your family and friends to tell you the truth. You want your assignments to be true. When you go out to the store and buy something, you want the instructions to be true. You really can't live without truth all day long, okay? You, just, you, you die quickly, okay? So why wouldn't we want our worldview to be true? And so the first question is, of course, does our worldview match with reality? That means when I look at these things here, origins, the nature of humanity, morality, reality, purpose, identity, destiny. Do these things really match what we know about reality? And then we look at B here where it says, what's your evidence that it does correspond to reality? Yes, there's evidence that all these things match reality. We can provide evidence, okay? We can give historical evidence, we can give scientific evidence, we can give experiential evidence, which kind of ties in here with number two where it says, is the worldview consistent with facts, observation, and life events, Okay. So yes, we need that uh, worldview test. But that is so important because we come down to three here, the test of livability. It says here, worldviews in life, as everyone recognizes, are works in progress. What that means is that there will be times when we don't always live out, live out our worldview. Uh, you know, I, I think we all know by now that we're not all perfectly sanctified yet, right? And even if we have our all our knowledge down of origins, the nature of humanity, morality, reality, purpose, identity, and destiny, all these things, we still don't always live that out in reality, in reality in a practical way, okay? Um, but you know what? It could still be true, okay? It's still true. Uh, you know, I, someone asked me this in my big questions class. We were talking about the resurrection. They said, 
well, you know, <clears throat> what about the resurrection? What if someone has a poor witness? You know what? Yeshua could have still risen from the dead, even if you have a poor witness, okay? Your, your witness doesn't impact history, I'm sorry. It doesn't impact the past, okay? It doesn't impact whether Lincoln got assassinated, okay? Yes, you should have a good witness and try to do your best to live out your faith, but I, I'm sorry, I, I've had too many discussions with uh, Mormons and Muslims and people from different backgrounds. I've studied the Quran. I've studied the Book of Mormon. It's not true. It's just not true. I mean, there, there's, the Quran says Yeshua never died. For, died. He says never even died. said never happened. I don't care how nice a Muslim is to me. I don't care how loving they are. I'm not going to become a Muslim. I'm just not. It's not true. I'm sorry. I can't, I can't accept the Quran as a revelation from God. I'm not going to be a Mormon. I've read the Book of Mormon's fiction. I'm sorry. I, I've studied enough to know it's fiction. So you're being too harsh. No, I'm trying to help you. I just don't find this uh, thing that we have to divide orthodoxy and orthopraxy to be convincing, okay? Orthodoxy is what you believe. Orthopraxy is how you live. They go like this. They go exactly together. You can't divorce them, okay? Not in this day and age, you can't, okay? So, okay. So with testing worldviews, um, we have the truth test, the experiential test, and the test of livability. Now, let's talk about some of the competing worldviews, just uh, about five that are out there. There's so many. Well, there's no doubt that uh, we are somewhat secularizing as a culture. I think we've known that for a while. I don't have percentages of people that don't believe in God right now or whatever. I don't have an exact percentage. But, uh, you know, there's definitely a pull out in the culture towards secularism that uh, we don't need God to make sense of reality. And, uh, you know, we can do what we want. We can build a utopia in this world if we have enough technology and we can fix the culture without God. Uh, the question for us today is, you know, is that worldview, if it kind of impacts us, is maybe at times probably we live sometimes as if there's no God, right? We do that sometimes, uh, you know, where we certainly maybe just tune God out or leave him out of our lives for 10 minutes of the day, and that's not going to work. So that's one worldview that's out there that we have to be dealing with regularly is the uh, secularism. And <clears throat> to be honest, uh, Jewish people, quite frankly, fall into this a lot. There's a lot of secular Jewish people that I know. And so we need to be ready to talk to them about this issue. Consumerism is another one that's always been there. That's where we find uh, our ultimate fulfillment among what we have and own. That's definitely always been an issue. Um, I think uh, we as believers fall into that regularly. I do too. Um, we have to guard ourselves against that one. And then conform conformism, that's of course... You know, it says right here, are we being transformed by societal expectations and norms, or are we being transformed by the renewing of our minds? How much is the culture rubbing on us, off on us is always going to be a challenge, and how much we're rubbing off on them is a challenge, okay? We are challenged in that area. We, uh, there's so many things pulling at us all the time, right? Social media, uh, you know, believe this, do this, do that. And of course, our young people are facing that as well. And we have to guard ourselves. We have to constantly go to God and ask him to renew us all the time. Renew us, right? And uh, renew our minds in the word. And then we have individualism. Uh, that's always a trap that's out there that some people are just deciding to live as lone rangers where they're at the center of everything. They don't want to be in community at all. Um, that is certainly a problem in our culture. It's always been a problem, especially Western, westernized individualism. Um, 
So we need to guard ourselves against that. Perhaps some of us, you know, shy away from community. But you cannot flourish as an island, okay? Um, I notice how weak I am when I'm, not around other belie- when I'm not around other believers or I'm not in community. I just grow we- weaker and weaker. Okay. And then this last one's kind of interesting, moral therapeutic deism. You may say, well, there's one I've been thinking about, right? I woke up today, I said, what the heck? I'm going to go study moral therapeutic deism, right? Well, that is a a view that came out. um, A couple of sociologists, a guy named Christian Smith and somebody else interviewed about five to 6,000 young young believers. And, you know, he found out what they really believed about God. And from their angle, they just said, well, the goal of the, the spiritual life is that God's there but he's not involved in your daily life. Unless you have a problem, you call out to him, but he's really not involved. The whole goal of life is for him, for you to be happy. He just wants you to be good and fair and happy, and that's it. He's not really engaged in your life on a daily basis, okay? Now, you guys hopefully know that deism means that God created the world, but he's not involved in the world today. And then they invited uh, this moral therapeutic part into it. You know, there is a trap there. We could sometimes fall into that where we just don't think God's involved in our lives at all and kind of live that way. So we have to guard against that as well. So those are just some of the worldviews that are out there. There's so many out there competing worldviews. I could list like 15 to 20, but I just want to go over five right now. All right. Well, so what I, just to leave you a little challenge, <clears throat> I think that I just will say, forgive me for my voice challenges today. I didn't know it was really an issue until I got up here. It wasn't really bothering me at all today until I got up here. But uh, three things. First of all, we, of course, as I said, we have to get very creative in, how re- in reaching the uh, community around us for if we want to think long-term of what's going on in our congregation. And we will run into people with different worldviews. And we need to be ready to talk about our worldview because we need to show people that our worldview answers these questions in today's world. Some people may not even care about the next life. They just be thinking about the here and now. That's fine. We can deal with that. So our worldview will deal with those issues. Secondly, we certainly need to be uh, teaching our young people the issue of worldview. Uh, certainly, we can't just teach them, you know, it's a relationship with Yeshua and you just die and go to heaven. That's it. That's, that's not going to cut it. We need to show them how a worldview impacts everything around them, of course. And then thirdly, let us all realize, once again, as I said, that our faith is much larger than simply relationship uh, with Yeshua. Let's um, hopefully be able to take this material. And if you want to go deeper on this, just email me and Henry as well. I know we've got plenty of books on worldview, and uh, I hope that this makes you see reality in a little bigger way, okay? You will deal with different worldviews all your life, whether you're in your job career, neighborhood, friends, family. You've already, some of you already dealt with this, I know. So let's uh, realize that our worldview, the biblical worldview, answers questions of reality, okay? And it has a holistic, it's a, has a holistic side to it, and it really is something that explains reality quite well. So having said that, why don't we have a word of prayer? Lord, we just want to thank you so much for this day. And uh, Lord, I just pray that we be able to take some of this material, God, and just help us to communicate to the world around us. We pray, Lord God, we'd realize that uh, this is important. And God, as the days go by, Father, I'm confident that we will run into people that have different worldviews. I pray, God, that we'd realize we can answer the big questions in, a, in the culture around us, that we have a holistic worldview that you've given to us through your revelation, God. And we're so thankful 
God, that we know we're created in the image and likeness of you. We have a purpose. We have meaning. We have a destiny. We thank you, God, that you've given that to us out of your mercy and grace. We pray this all in Yeshua's name. Amen.